Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and attendings in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Zara Patel, Director of Endoscopic Skull Base Surgery, Director of the Rhinology Fellowship, and an Associate Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Stanford University. She completed her medical degree at the Oregon Health and Sciences University, followed by residency in otolaryngology at Mount Sinai Medical Center, and fellowship in rhinology and skull-based surgery at Stanford University. She is the immediate past chair of the Education Committee and now member of the board of the directors for the American Rhinologic Society. Dr. Patel, thank you for joining me today. I hope I did your introduction justice, and I'm thrilled to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, it's a lot of words that none of our patients can pronounce. (laughs) Good. Well, can you start out by telling us a little bit about your path to otolaryngology? Sure. You know, when I was, uh, when I was even going back before medical school, when I was an undergrad and thinking about becoming a doctor, I didn't really know anything about otolaryngology or ENT. I was thinking more along the lines of a traditional primary care doctor, because that's really the example of doctors that I had seen or been, you know, available to me at that point. And, and I chose Oregon Health and Science University because of that, because they were very strong in primary care. They had really interesting things going on with their death with dignity movement at that time and all sorts of interesting things going on in their primary care uh, view. And and they had these rotations where you'd go out to rural Oregon and, and, you know, practice like they did back in like the old West. (laughs) And so, uh, and I did all those things. I, I really enjoyed all of those experiences, but as many of, of you listening know, when you do your surgery rotation as a medical student, um, you you then suddenly know you're a surgeon or you're not a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know if you're a surgeon, if you love it, you suddenly can't imagine doing anything else. And so that really was what struck me when I did my surgery rotation. And then you know trying to figure out what within surgery really attracted me and drew me. Uh, I, I looked at lots of different surgical subspecialties, honestly. Um, I was interested in neurosurgery and orthopedics and neurology, all these different things. And it was really a, a chance occurrence that I was given this elective rotation in otolaryngology um, during my first year in medical school that sort of started the spark and drew me along this line mm-hmm. uh, of eventually going into otolaryngology. And it was primarily because of the person I worked with, like so many other experiences that people have, the people that you interact with and how similar you are to them and how much you can connect with them and see how much they love what they're doing, if they have a passion for what they're doing. That's really what uh, drew me in most um, during that rotation. Right. And you mentioned the death with dignity movement. Can you expand upon what that was like at that time? Yeah, that was, you know, um, I don't know how many listeners are familiar with Death Death with Dignity, but back when I was just, uh, you know, about to enter into medical school, end-of-life care was not what it is today in this country. And we still have 
a far ways to go, I think, in this country as far as really uh, understanding what it is to uh, allow people to die with dignity and um, and not, you know, in a way that they wouldn't have wished for themselves or imagined for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the death with dignity idea was that, you know, in Oregon at that time, it was one of the only places in the country where you could choose to end your own life as a patient. So for example, if you had terminal cancer and all that was in front of you was another month of pain and suffering, um, there was just at that time beginning to be a legal way of asking your physician, your compassionate palliative care physician to help you not suffer in that way Mm -hmm. and not have to live the last month of your life in excruciating pain. And, and that was really interesting to me. And it was more in line with, you know, uh, what I thought was a dignified way of, of, you know, ending your days on this, on this earth, as opposed to, unfortunately, so many patients that we see on ventilators, unconscious, um, mm-hmm. you know, being sort of hobbled along, uh, but not really living a life, certainly not having any quality of life. Um, and so anyway, that was something that had interested me back then and is not something I'm at all involved in anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many different aspects of medicine that are interesting and deserve our attention. Right. There's so many paths you can go down yes. and eventually you ended up in rhinology and skull-based surgery. So yeah. what drew you to that aspect of otolaryngology? Yeah. Well, that initial mentor that I had mentioned um, in otolaryngology, his name is Dr. Peter Wong, uh, who many in ENT will know well, uh, he was a rhinologist. And so even from that very first medical school rotation, I knew what rhinology was, which for all our listeners is basically specializing in uh, surgery through the nose, involving the nose, the paranasal sinuses, and the skull base that you can reach ventrally through the nasal cavity endoscopically. And, uh, you know, he was, he was doing that. And so I knew about it right away. And then as I went through all of my rotations and residency, yet again, just like when I was a medical student, I enjoyed everything. I really loved doing, um, you know, neck dissections, thyroid stuff, laryngology, otology, you know, giving someone the gift of hearing again. Uh, facial plastics is really creative. Uh, there's so many different interesting things that you could do within the field of otolaryngology. But in rhinology, we were really at a point where uh, we were pushing the boundaries way further than they had ever been pushed before. And I will say that that's still an exciting part of rhinology, that we're still exploring new things that we can do endoscopically through the nose and new areas of the skull base that we can approach and address Mm -hmm. and remove tumors from and help infections in and things like that. But at the time, which is over a decade ago at this point, uh, you know, they were just starting to explore the skull base and the different parts of the skull base that we could access endoscopically and the types of surgeries that were just being invented on a, a regular rolling basis at that time was just so exciting. Mm-hmm. And you could see that it was going to be groundbreaking. You know, at this point, we can take patients who, you know, over, you know, 20 years ago when they had these types of surgeries either like say they have a tumor at the skull base that's really difficult for a neurosurgeon to get to from the external 
craniotomy approach because you have to retract the brain. Mm-hmm. And anytime you retract the brain, you cause swelling of the brain, which in turn causes all sorts of problems, lack of function, deficits, seizures, all sorts of things. And so, you know, a patient 20 years ago with that tumor, say it was, you know, not right at the pituitary, but a little bit to the side or a little bit higher up. That patient might've been told that, you know, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. The surgery is too morbid. It's not worth it to go after this. And that's it. Mm-hmm. The second best thing that could be done would be that type of procedure where they did an external craniotomy, you know, took out a piece of the skull, retracted the brain, went in and got the tumor out. And then the patient would have these very substantial functional deficits, possible seizures. They would go to, they would stay in the hospital, probably in the ICU for a significant period of time. They would go to a skilled nursing facility after that to try to help rehab all those deficits that they developed. And who knows if they ever got back home or if they ever got back to a semblance of life. Now compare that to what we can do now. We address these tumors endoscopically through the nose. I can access all different parts of the skull base and I don't have to move the brain at all. In fact, I can see all the cranial nerves and interesting vessels and you know all these really important critical structures right face on and mm-hmm. avoid them to get you know this tumor out and out through the nose. And that patient stays you know three days in the hospital and then they go back to their normal life. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge change from what we can offer these patients. So that, that, you know, really was what drew me to the field and what continues to keep me interested in skull base surgery. Right. And uh, rhinology and skull base surgery, it's important to remember there's two parts to it. Um, it's truly revolutionary what has changed over time with the endonasal approach. And uh, I, I find it extremely interesting and I, I'm very lucky to hear from you about kind of rhinology and what it encompasses truly. Um, So you touched on some of the patients and the pathologies that you see. What's a normal day like in a rhinologist clinic, I guess? There's no normal day. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would say every day is really interesting and can be very different. Mm -hmm. So as an example, my weekly kind of breakdown would be I have one academic day, so that's a day that I do research, I catch up on administrative things, I do other things in life, like going to the doctor (laughs) or whatever. And then the other uh, four days of the week are two days of clinic and two days of OR. And in my clinic, I see patients of all age range, so pediatrics through really old people, and all different severities of pathology. So anyone who just might have nasal obstruction and they have difficulty breathing through their nose, or someone who has chronic sinusitis and has been suffering from sinus infections that are ongoing and they can't get treated and just resolve like a normal acute sinus infection. People with tumors that grow in their nose and either block their nose or cause bleeding or start pushing on the really important structures around the nose like your eye. People who have developed CSF leaks, so cerebrospinal fluid that um, comes from the intracranial cavity and starts leaking into the nasal cavity because someone has increased intracranial pressure and that has thinned the skull base that's already quite thin between the brain and the sinuses below. People who have skull base tumors, so pituitary tumors, um, tumors that are in the clivus, tumors that that are in the paracellular region, um, tumors affecting all the different cranial nerves that allow your eyes to move in the way that they do, allow your eyes to see 
the way that they can see, allow you to speak and swallow normally, allow you to move your face mm -hmm. uh, and allow you to feel on your face and inside your nose. So all of those cranial nerves are right there at the skull base and, and any tumor or infection that affects them, uh, I might see that type of patient in my clinic. And then when I operate, uh, many of my surgeries are just me with residents uh, and medical students in the OR um, doing those types of surgeries, but sometimes they are combined surgeries. So uh, sometimes I'll do combined surgeries with neurosurgery for, for example, pituitary tumors. Um, sometimes I'll do combined surgeries with oculoplastics colleagues who, for a patient who has a tumor that's at the medial aspect of their orbit. So mm -hmm. they're going to come from the eye and I'm going to come from inside the nose. Sometimes people with a blocked nasal lacrimal duct, they need access from inside the nose endoscopically and they come with a little stunt from the canaliculi and the, the eye. So there's a lot of uh, collaborative surgery that you do, which is also a really fun part of being a rhinologist. Right. And like you mentioned, you were interested in multiple subspecialties. So it's nice to kind of have all those accesses available. Yes, yeah, for sure. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you've been kind of at the forefront on your biweekly updates that you've been giving regarding the pandemic. Uh, what sort of trends have you been seeing most recently? Yeah. So just to give people a little background on that, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has been going on now for so long, but right at the very beginning, uh, otolaryngology was one of the fields that uh, was most greatly affected once we realized that the highest viral load is in the nose and throats, <laughs> right where we operate. And so uh, we as a field, we as a specialty have been quite active overall in participating in research directed at understanding uh, the virus better, understanding how the virus may be spread, both in clinical settings and, you know, out in the public. And so although it seems uh, a little strange for a surgical subspecialty to be so active in like a public health uh, infectious disease type of issue, uh, it's because of how it has affected our specialty so much that we have such a, a large stake in understanding the disease, understanding the pandemic, and really understanding how to move forward. Mm -hmm. So with that background, uh, you know, my institution, uh, the dean and the, the rest of the medical leadership uh, were getting updates from, our, from my prior chair, actually, uh, Dr. Rob Jackler, for the whole first year during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has just stepped down from being chair, handed it over to uh, Konstantina Stankovich, who's very good and has started this year. And no, he, he knew that I had done a lot of research in this area and so asked me to pick up the torch and continue uh, giving these updates, which are so important for our institution to be able to plan and treat patients well and protect our community of healthcare providers. And so that's what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. So having said all that, the trends that you're asking about, you know, uh, it really waxes and wanes depending on what's going on. So of course, all of us are familiar with the Delta variant that just created the last surge that we went through. Thankfully, now across the US and here in California, that surge is waning. And most areas around the globe are waning. However, there are some areas, for example, the UK, that now appears to be picking up again in cases. There's a lot of different theories as to why that may be. One theory is that there is a new 
variant that's been found in the UK. It is of the Delta lineage, so a variant of the Delta variant. Mm. And uh, we'll have to watch and see if that is one of the key factors in why cases are rising in the UK. Mm. Now, I will say that it may not be that because we actually have had that variant here in the US and it did not outperform the initial Delta variant uh, and gain more uh, sort of case percentage. And so it may have more to do with the UK surge currently may have more to do with the fact that their cases are rising most rapidly in school-aged children. We're all now back in school. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the UK overall does not have a very high percentage of 12 to 15 year old children vaccinated. It's less than eight or 7%. Also, the UK was one of the earliest in all of Western Europe or Western democracies to vaccinate. And so the waning of immunity that comes after a long time after you've been vaccinated may be ripe for a surge with them at this point. Mm -hmm. And the type of vaccines that they use, they depended more heavily on the AstraZeneca vaccine versus the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that were most common here in the US. And we know that the amount of immunity that you get from the AstraZeneca is not as good as those other two. And so all of those other factors are likely playing into why there is a current surge in the UK. And we'll have to just continue to monitor to see if that surge spreads to other parts of the world uh, or if a new variant emerges. You know, Unfortunately, until we have a much, much larger percentage of the population vaccinated, new variants will continue to emerge. And it's really only a matter of time before uh, a variant again has a higher infectious rate and you know can sort of uh, evade our antibodies that we've developed to this point. Right, well, thank you for sharing uh, those latest trends. It's unfortunate to hear that we have those waxing and waning still going on but uh, it wouldn't be possible to keep the public informed without people like you. So thank you for all you're doing. And it's interesting to see how otolaryngologists can play a part in the public health um, that maybe they didn't see their role in before. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it's definitely not a role that I ever saw myself taking on or, or even having such a, you know, um, primary role and even identifying the virus itself, you know, understanding from early on about how loss of smell was this very, you know, positive identifier of having gotten COVID-19. You know, I, I happened to have been researching in smell loss and smell distortion for over a decade. It's a very unique niche <laughs> and most people don't know much about smell loss or smell distortion. And that is one of the reasons why very early on, my colleagues in Italy actually reached out to me to tell me about how they were starting to lose their smell and taste in a large percentage, the otolaryngologists themselves oh, wow. having lost yeah. smell. And so it sort of, you know, sparked a light bulb. And, and that's one of the earliest things that we put out uh, as far as information about the the pandemic. And it's, you know, one of the reasons why I became a consultant for the CDC, because they were starting to try to, you know, co coalesce a, a trove of information that would allow them to add that to the list. And then they finally did, after I kept pushing for a while, add it to the list of screening symptoms for COVID-19. And so just, just being able to affect public health policy on that scale was really rewarding for me. 
Right, right. Uh, I've read some a few articles about how anosmia is not taken seriously in patients as well. Can you comment on some of the um, complaints that patients may have? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that is something I hear a lot from my patients because I'm almost never the first doctor that they've gone to see about this problem. It's almost always a primary care doctor, first urgent care doctor, maybe a general ENT eventually. Um, but like I said, it's not something that many people were familiar with before this pandemic. And so, you know, when you, if you had to just, you know, ask a person on the street, what sense would you, if you had to lose one, which one would you lose out of all the different senses? And, and most people probably would choose loss of, you know, smell as opposed to sight or hearing or touch or these things that we think are really imperative to our ability to move around in the world and interact with other people. But anyone who has lost their sense of smell and taste can tell you how impactful that is to their quality of life in a way that they never would have imagined before it happened to them. And I can tell you just from, you know, the research that we know that, you know, there's some very basic ways that it can affect your quality of life or safety. For example, just the evolutionary defense mechanisms of being able to smell smoke if there's fire near you, smell if food has gone bad so you don't get you know, food poisoning and get sick and die from eating bad food. <laughs> Those basic things are protective mechanisms that our smell allows us. But on top of that, it's such a primordial part of our senses that you know, it is really the way in which you make all of your first impressions. You think you are making a first impression based on how someone looks, whether they're smiling, how symmetric their face is, all these things that we've heard about. But really a lot of the way that you make your first impression is the way that you smell someone. And it's not at a conscious level. It's not like people with BO or not. It's like <laughs> being able to smell anxiety in a person, being able to smell um, confidence, being able to detect, and this is very subconscious level, how different their HLA complex, that's a complex that's part of your immune system, how different their complex is from your own. That's how you pick your sexual partners and how you eventually choose your life mate. And people think it's because of the way they look or the way that they, you know, bond or the way that how successful that person is. But really it's that basic that you can just track how different someone's HLA complex is. That's how women choose their sexual partners and that's how we choose our life partners. <laughs> so it is really like on all levels of how yeah. we interact with human beings that smell is so important and so integrated into who we are. That's incredible. Uh, I love that. And it's interesting to know that the world is going more virtual and we're kind of losing that um, that sense in our ability to whether it's interviews choosing a partner everything it's all going virtual so that's such an interesting um trend and we'll see how that changes things but it is very sure i think that um i think that can be said for so many different things but yes definitely you know um the ability to have that in-person experience um is being lost slowly over time. There's so many conveniences that come out of this type of interaction that we're having, but you do lose something when you're not able to be there and smell, touch, you know, really um, be in the aura of that other person. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for discussing um, your path to otolaryngology and rhinology and some of the changes that have occurred with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, do you have any advice to share for students interested in otolaryngology? Sure, uh, I'm full of advice. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say that um, just finding mentors within the field is probably the number one thing that will help any student in any field, honestly. Um, finding someone who can tell you about what's valued in that field, um, you know, the type of people that do well in that field, um, you know, and then once you have decided truly that you are going to be a good fit and that field is a good fit for you, they can help offer you research opportunities and ways in which you can interact with patients and learn more about the day-to-day -day of being in that field, which informs your decision even more. And, you know, as, as all of you guys know, when you're going through the interview process, you know, it's things like research that you've done in the field, as well as, you know, the connections you've made, how, you know, uh, strong of a, an impression you've made on that mentor or mentors and what kind of letters they're going to write for you. Those are all the things that we look at when we're interviewing for residency. And so, you know, the first step of finding someone who can then open all these other avenues to you is probably the, the best advice I can give people. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. And thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast this week. We heard from Dr. Patel about her path to rhinology and some of the latest trends in COVID-19. Make sure to follow her at Zara Patel underscore MD on Instagram for those biweekly COVID update, updates. And then follow Sundays with Saima on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date for the latest episodes. Make sure to catch us next week on Sundays with Saima. Thank you so much. Thank you.